Well, hello there, and welcome to Food Lab Talk. I'm your host, Michael Bakker. This season, we're talking about shifting diets. And shifting diets is something today's guest is all about. Eve Turopol is a globally recognized author and behavioral design strategist. And she's the founder and executive director of the Food for Climate League. By facilitating a deeper understanding of how people think and make decisions, Food for Climate League creates narratives and implementation strategies that reframe climate-smart eating as enticing, accessible, and culturally relevant. That all sounds amazing. Welcome to the show, Eve. Happy to have you here. Thanks for having me, Michael. All righty. To get things started, would you mind sharing what was your main motivation for you to begin the Food for Climate League? And what is the Food for Climate League? Sure. So there is a rather long story behind all of this. I have spent the last 13 years doing research on food culture, really trying to understand the why behind the rise of foodie culture. Why is it that young people today spend a disproportionate amount of their discretionary time and income on food? And I've traveled around the world and I'm still, to be frank, completely obsessed with this topic because it's ever changing. And it led me to a lot of research that was not centered around the food system, but around mental health crises and rising rates of depression and stress and anxiety and loneliness and how food is being used as a coping mechanism, as a tool, as a way for people to find a sense of safety in life, to find a sense of community, to find a sense of purpose. And most of my work had centered on the impact of the digital age and driving a lot of these mental health crises and and the reasons why people are are returning to something that is so basic, so tangible, (laughs) um, so simple as food. And along the way, worked as a consultant for food companies, hospitality companies, farming groups, and got to know so many people around the world who let me into their lives for God knows what reason, out of kindness, I don't know, and spoke to me about the things that they lay awake at night worried about. And what I found is that oftentimes people were saying to me, listen, I don't know if I'm going to ever be able to buy a house or a car. I don't know if my city is going to be underwater in 50 years. I don't even understand how my phone works, yet my life relies on it. And I want a sense of control. I may as well enjoy my life. And so I'm going to spend my money on food and really great food experiences. I found that to be really fascinating. And then I actually found myself at a convening hosted by Google and was asked actually to speak about Gen Z and food trends, I believe, was the prompt that I was given. And instead, I talked about young people and the climate crisis and depression and anxiety. And I got off stage and there were two really critical conversations that changed my life. So one was an individual from a large food company who said to me, you know, Eve, I really think that that young people are full of it when it comes to sustainability. And we know this because our sustainable food products and campaigns never do well. We always lose money on it. And this was not the first time that I had heard this, right? I mean, this had been kind of like the undercurrent of many conversations in the food system at, at that time. And I think this was in 2019. At that point, too, we were starting to see the intention action gap in market research. So around 2015, 2016, market research firms had started to ask questions like, would you spend a dollar more for a product that was sustainable, that had no plastic, that gave 1% back to the planet? And people were like, yeah, totally. I'm going to spend more money on this. Then reality hit. 
And companies responded to that market research, created these products, put it out there, and people weren't buying it in the numbers that they had said that they would. And so this was one part of the conversation that was transformational. I then went to a coffee break and I met two really amazing individuals, Dorothy Shaver and Lisa Feldman, who, if you don't know them, look them up. They are radically awesome individuals who are doing important work in the food system. And the conversation was slightly different with them. What we talked about was, yes, the intention action gap, but what we ended up really honing in on was the fact that even at a conference that was full of people who work in the food system, people were actually talking past each other that year. No one could agree on the definition of biodiversity or upcycled or sustainable. And we started to discuss, well, how the heck can we expect the everyday consumer to make a decision based on sustainability if we in this room don't even understand it? And it really was at that moment in time that I realized that it was important for me to utilize the research that I had done for the last decade on consumer behavior, what drives food trends, and use it in some way to bend food culture in a more sustainable direction. Yeah, but I want to dig a little deeper into that. So behavior change. I'm not a behavioral scientist or behavioral economist, but it feels to me very simplistically, there is a supply side and there's a demand side. You can change the food environment because what you offer or not will impact what people ultimately consume. And there's a demand side. So my first question is, as it relates to the narrative itself, why should people believe in ultimately the narrative you believe in? And I say that with kindness, but it's like from what makes you believe that your narrative is, quote unquote, a good narrative, and then tied it to in today's environment where we consume our information individually, it's what would make me trust you and not your neighbor? Well, I think what you're getting at too is a philosophical shift that we went through as an organization. And I do think we started with this idea that we are going to craft the narrative that everyone will rally around. And in many ways, that was ridiculous for all of the reasons that you're pointing out right now. And now our work is focused on individualized narratives. The work that we do is centered on understanding who people are, what their needs are, what they value, what are their habits? What are the cultural contexts? Oftentimes, the narratives that we develop are co-developed. So we are asking people, you know, what would make you excited about this? How would you convince your mother or your father or your friend to eat this? There is no one narrative. And again, I think we started with this kind of simplistic view, but nothing simple. And food and environment are two extraordinarily personal and triggering topics. And that's a whole other area of research that I've really enjoyed expanding my own knowledge of over the last four years. But the reality is that food is deeply personal. It is culture. It is identity. It is religion. It is socioeconomics. Then you have the climate crisis, which scientists believe we didn't even evolve to think about something that's so amorphous that is, for many people, very future-focused. 
it creates a lot of cognitive dissonance and a lot of discomfort when we think about it. And most people don't want to think about the apocalypse when they're eating. So you try to put those two things together, it doesn't go very well. Ultimately, you can't come up with one way of talking about this topic because of those complexities. And so to your question of why should anybody trust us? Well, really, you shouldn't. And part of the work that we do is understanding, well, who do you trust? And let's engage them in this process. So more often than not, it's not Food for Climate League that is disseminating the message. We are facilitating a community's ability to rebuild a message, to reframe a message, and we are giving them the tools to then disseminate it so that the leaders, the thought leaders, the people who inspire the change makers feel equipped and able to rally their own community around this. Can I just go back to the narrative development? So I am personally challenged with the following polarity, if that's the right word. So I think on the one hand, many of us involved in food systems believe that diets need to shift. For all the reasons that we come up with, it's either population health, it's planetary health, whatever the reasons might be. And at the same time, we say, well, but we don't want to force a specific individual to change his or her diet. But there is this belief out there that, you know, at a higher level, there needs to be a clear diet shift. And at the same time, we believe that you can pick your own shift in diet based on whoever you believe you can trust. And I don't know how it works for you, but I have a lot of individuals in my ecosystem who I love chatting with, who I love hanging out with, but who I would not necessarily trust to give me science-based, evidence-based dietary guidance. So how does that complexity or polarity resonate with you or not? I think that you probably make food decisions in a very different way than the general public does. And I don't think that the general public is making a food decision based on data. They're making that decision based on emotions. And so the narratives that we develop are specifically linking back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, as well as self-determination theory. And we think about what sustainable food behavior and how do we present it in such a way so that people can feel empowered, more autonomous, and more connected. And it's not necessarily saying, you know, clams have just as much protein per serving as beef. That's true. That might resonate with a certain crowd of bodybuilders and protein-aware individuals, likely men, but though not exclusively, uh, of a certain socioeconomic status. But for others, it might be clam gardens are a Native American tradition and something that is foundational to the North American diet. And some people are really interested in that. Um, clams are a whole unprocessed protein source that is good for the environment. There's, there's so many different ways of talking about this. And I think, again, the narrative, as we think about it, the shift in perception, it is not just what is a message on a billboard. It's 
the entire ecosystem. Who do you see consuming this food? How is it presented on menus? We're working on a project right now that's about beans. We are recognizing the fact that beans are affordable. It is a whole unprocessed plant protein. It is culturally relevant to basically everybody. Every culture has a bean dish of some kind. And yet, the current perception of beans is that it's a poor person's food. And those who are on a lower socioeconomic spectrum, on the the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum in the United States, are least likely to eat beans because of that negative perception. Right now, we're working on a project, we don't have the answer yet, of how do we just change the way that people think about this? How do we even make it so that when they go to a restaurant, they're thinking about ordering a bean dish? And we're going to be working with athletes on this. How do we create an association between beans and athletes? It almost doesn't even matter what the message is exactly. We just want people to have that kind of mental association, right? This is cool. This is healthy. This is going to make me strong. This is maybe representative of my culture and my heritage. There's all sorts of different ways of creating a story and the stories that we tell ourselves. I mean, I didn't understand how many myths exist in this space and how many false stories we tell ourselves and how that is hindering not just individual choice on a consumer level, but how that's hindering business decisions. There are so many myths that exist even within this industry, eaters don't want this. It's too expensive. It's too difficult. It's not tasty. Sustainability is too costly and it's all about giving things up. There are so many different ways as well to eat in a sustainable fashion. And that's also getting to what you were saying of, you know, one person tells me this, another person tells me that. It's like, well, but that is the beauty of the situation. There are so many different ways to eat sustainably. You can kind of make it fit your your diet, your culture to a certain extent, right? As long as you are reducing the amount of animal protein, not necessarily eliminating it, but reducing it, using it in different ways. As long as you're reducing the food that you are wasting, then there's actually a whole lot of freedom of choice. And what we need to do is present it as an opportunity. Yeah. And I still want to go back to the earlier part of our conversation. And I'll tell you the challenge I think I find myself in It's, I absolutely believe, like you, that people have individual freedoms to make choices. But you're showing up with the Food for Climate League based on the core belief that there is a need or a clear connection between what you eat, the environment, and health. That's your core belief, and you act upon that core belief, and within that, you're ultimately trying to affect change. And I think we find it really, really hard to acknowledge that there is this guiding principle that makes you show up, and then talking about individual freedoms. Because there is, to an extent, tension in the system. Because I don't think that your organization or you personally would ultimately want to do a project or a body of work that would go against your core belief, where people would say, there is no relationship between food and the climate or the way we consume does not tie to your health because you would say, I don't believe in that and therefore I would not work on that. Right. But how might we in this world of polarization be more transparent about ultimately our guiding principles and our core beliefs and within that still say, but within that there is a lot of freedom within my quote unquote framework. I understand what you're asking. I think that 
we aren't hiding our motivation. And part of the work in this space is also recognizing that most people want the same things. We want to live healthy lives. We want to nourish our children. We want to have a planet that is habitable. We want farmland that can be passed down through generations. There might be specifics of this that we disagree on, right? There might be some people who say the solution is regenerative agriculture and other people say it's indoor agriculture and other people say, no, it's continued CAFOs because it's going to feed the world and give people the calories that they need, right? But there are unifying truths of what people are looking for. And there are more commonalities than you would think across the spectrum of people recognizing the issues that do exist. And I think this has changed drastically in the last 10 years. I remember going to a meeting of leaders in farming and agriculture and Sonny Perdue was there and he talked about sustainability, but it was sustainable business. He was just framing it in a different way. But it was a farm group and they were talking about sustainability. Now, the conversations that I have with farmers is very different. It's not just about sustainable business. It's about handing their business down to their children. It's about reduced yields and how are they actually going to stay in business this year or next year. And maybe they're coming at this from a completely different angle, but we do have the same mission in mind. And I feel the same way about people who work in food justice and food access, people who work in animal rights issues and people who work on climate, the solution is by and large the same, which is also what is beautiful about this. And so I don't think that it's about hiding what my motivation is or what Food for Climate League's motivation is. It's also about understanding who are we working with, who are we working for, what are their needs and their values, and seeing how our own belief systems and our own goals align with what it is that they care about. Part of what motivates me is an understanding that in the future, we're simply going to have less choice. The choice will be made for us. And we're still in this unique window of time where if we do get people to act individually and make their own decisions that do make sense for them, their cultures, their locations, their needs, their values, we could transform the food system in such a way that you are actually protecting that freedom of choice and individual freedom with food a little bit more than if we continue down this pathway and we simply have a very limited amount of food available to whom at what time of year. So I think that there is kind of this interesting push right now. Like we're going to end up with a more sustainable food system somehow, right? But it, we have a huge decision right now to decide, well, what does that sustainable food system look like? Yes. And if I can just build upon that, what I think is so interesting is that what we eat, how we eat, when we eat it has changed dramatically, at least for us in the West, over the last two generations. And I think we weren't necessarily open and intentional as a society about the why of those changes. Those changes happen for a variety of reasons. And we're now dealing with the outcomes of all of that. But now that you want to go either back to maybe what it was or to a next evolution of that, there is this notion out there that we need to articulate of why we need to change, how to change. And I think individuals feel very, very challenged by change happened to me over my last two generations. Nobody told me or guided me then or told me up front, 
as a result of what is going to change, this will happen to you and your family. And now we need to trust those individuals. Again, we want to tell you, you need to change again. It's, I think that's really, really hard. And now you get the additional components, the judging, or I'm going to help you while I continue to enjoy what I enjoy. It is so incredibly complex. Yes. It is. But I think a lot of this is also about understanding that there is no one food company that knows what people want or what they should be eating. And that's actually what I find so exciting about the work that we're doing, because we're actually trying to learn from people and listen to them and figure out what does a sustainable food system actually look like to you? It is taking the time to ask that question. Yeah. And I think the other one for me is that the, <laughs> the dilemma between instant gratification and long-term ramifications. That's the other one is that I will get my fix by enjoying X, Y, and Z now. And if I have those fixes regularly, I enjoy that. But longer term, I might pay a price for that. And that's really, really hard for people to see coming. Yeah. You have to make something immediately joyful and satisfying for anybody to participate. And this also gets back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs and the original research we did. What we found is that by and large, food and climate messaging was speaking to people's desire for purpose, but a very specific niche type of purpose, altruism. Give this up, framed in the negative, in order to do something good for society, right? That's the that still is the vast majority of food and climate messaging. That is only going to appeal to a very slim part of the global population. We are in a moment of multiple crises, health crises, mental health crises, inflation. There's still one fifth of the United States that doesn't know where their next meal is coming from. Most people are not going to choose a food because it's going to do good for the future. And I think also this, this creates another myth, which is that most people don't care about the climate crisis, which was the myth that someone told me when I got off stage at that conference at Google. No, the vast majority of people care. And the Yale Climate Communications Program has amazing data on this. They've been tracking it over many years. There is a rising number of people who are alarmed and concerned. That doesn't mean that it's driving their everyday decisions. Because we have record high rates of loneliness, stress, depression, anxiety. There are so many other immediate things that are shaping our decisions. And sometimes it's cost, sometimes it's availability, sometimes it's just comfort. And so you have to be able to paint people a picture of the, the eventual benefits, but really most of the work we do is focusing on the here and now and how do we make this something that is related to someone's own personal identity and their immediate needs, their immediate values. And it's kind of like an added benefit of, oh, and by the way, it's also good for the environment. So I can give an example of this. Love to hear that one. Okay. One of the really interesting things that we're seeing throughout food service is there's a number of executives at this point who are doing the analysis to say, where are our carbon emissions coming from? And they're realizing that a third, a quarter are coming from the cafeterias. It's coming from the food offering. And so you have executives saying, okay, we need to reduce the food waste and we need to shift to more plant forward diets. They then relay that down to the culinary teams. The culinary teams have gone to culinary school and trained up to the meat station. Another narrative. We are telling ourselves that you are more skilled and more successful if you are cooking meat. 
And so you now have a group of really passionate, talented individuals who have been told their entire professional lives that meat is a sign of their success. And now they're being told not to serve meat or not to serve as much meat. And there is oftentimes a gut reaction to that, which is meatless or plant forward foods. They're less flavorful. They're less satiating. This is boring. It's uh, you know, being told to me, honestly, there's oftentimes what we see in association with white food culture, with Western food culture, and not with the diversity of food cultures around the world that happen to be plant forward. <laughs> the vast majority of food cultures around the world are plant forward. And there's also a dominant belief, well, people don't actually want to eat this. Like, fine, I'll do it because you're telling me to, to reach your, you know, whatever, your emission goals, but this is not going to make people happy. And there's so many different reasons, right? Why you would want to move a menu towards being more plant forward. It is not just sustainability. It's also about nutrition. It can also be about celebrating a greater diversity of cultures on the plate. You know, 70% of the decision that's being made in the cafeteria has been made for people already. By the time they enter the cafeteria, the chefs are making the decision and the line cooks are making the decision. And then it's up to the individual. They can choose whatever they want amongst what's there. But the problem that many people are having is that the food that's being put out by these chefs, it's not made with love because they, they're not bought in. They don't want to be cooking plant forward. And then if the food is not immediately satisfying and beautiful and exciting and alluring, then you just end up with more food waste. You end up with unhappy eaters. Uh, so you're not achieving any of the nutrition goals or the sustainability goals. And you have disgruntled employees, both in back of house and front of house and the, the eaters and, uh, and the culinary staff. So Food for Climate League was, was brought in and we've been working. And the first thing that we did is we looked at, well, who's bought in here? Who's excited about plant-forward cooking? And who has the greatest impact on the ultimate menu? There were so many different audiences who we could have focused on. And we decided that actually, at the end of the day, the people who are setting the tone, who are preparing the food, it's the line-level workers. It's the hourly workers. And so we ended up developing what we call a culinary inspiration program. And what it really is, is a motivational program. And we developed the content really collectively. It was through about a year of listening and talking to line level workers, of presenting ideas and getting feedback and iterating on it. We also worked with the, one of the originators of self-determination theory. Once we came up with this, we got his feedback too uh, on what would work and not work. and. I should mention that this inspiration program is just one part of kind of a multifaceted program that we developed for the culinary team. And I remember doing the pilot in Chicago and it was so much fun to do. This is also, it's really gratifying just to also watch people like make the connections. And there was one individual who said to me, he's like, oh my gosh, this is the lima bean stew that my mom makes for me in Mexico. And then there was another group of women who were like, oh my gosh, this is fried okra. This is peas and rice. This is collard greens. It's like, yes. Like, it's really magical for, to watch somebody realize that they themselves, their families, their histories, their cultures are a part of this, that it's not a philosophy that's being put on them, that they can make it their own. They can bring their own histories and values to it. And then the last part of the training is about the climate. So. 100% of the people who went through this motivational program signed up for a culinary training that's offered by the CIA, 100%. What I love about your example, Eve, is the 
peeling the onion because it started with we want to offer a more balanced plant for diet that sounds really really straightforward and you think it's clear in my mind of why we need to do that we talked to our great partners the partners say got it they subsequently tell their chefs and we just think magically it's going to happen and then we're surprised that you end up with i would say the big tofu party and nothing really changes and i think when you really start to unpack in the way you described you find that there are so many things that ultimately needs to evolve and be aligned in order to really make change, but the change will take time. And I think what you articulated so beautifully as well is the agency that people want to have in their work. And while we might think, well, you have to do A, by going with ultimately a different menu offering that is more relevant to the individuals cooking it, you might get a better culinary experience, a better user experience, and you get to the same, if not better, results. So it's really interesting to think through your theories or practices of change, thinking about ultimately the various groups and stakeholders you're involved with. And then I think what you have done well with us is ultimately testing. Is what you believe truly true? And how can you evolve based on the data that you find as you do a little bit more research. And that's what I love about the job because you can't assume that you know what's going to motivate somebody. I don't know. I don't know until you know I sit in a room with someone for a while and meet with them more than once. And you know my, my background's in journalism. I love interviewing people. I love learning from people. And that's really what I get to do in this work. But at the same time, we are very rigorous in the work that we do. We don't want to waste time. If what we're doing is not working, we want to know so that we can change directions. Yeah. Going back to where we started, Eve, if you knew then what you know now, would you have followed the same path? And I want to tie it back to systems change, because as you know, food systems are extraordinarily complex. So when you think about food systems and affecting change, is what you thought to be a core driver of change in 2019 what you still believe as of today? It's a great question. And the answer is yes and no. I think we thought it was more simple than it is. I think at the time we thought we are going to come up with a unified way for the food industry to talk about food and sustainability. And we were really, really focused on narrative. And over the last four years, we've come to an understanding that it's not just about narrative, it's about overall perception and how perception then impacts behaviors. So it's similar. It's very similar. Narrative is a tool to shifting people's perceptions, but you can also change the food environment. You can make certain options more readily available, more enticing, more colorful. You can give a menu a different title. You can organize the items in different ways. So narrative is one tool to shift people's perceptions. I think that what is still right is this understanding of the complexity of food systems change. You can impact supply chain. You can impact the environment. And there's so many different external factors. But something that is underinvested in is behavior change. And it's really interesting because if you look at the COP21 Paris Agreement and the WHO agreements, they don't address at all the influence of consumer behavior on food systems. Yet, 
there are so many different analyses that say none of this is going to be successful unless we actually get eaters to eat this. And we've seen in the food system, just because you build it doesn't mean that people come. So we continue to focus on food environments, on individual actions, namely perceptions and behaviors, and most specifically sociocultural contexts, which I think the fact that we still exist (laughs) is a testament to the fact that we started off going in the right direction. We started six months before COVID started, and we're now four years in, and our funding is so much more diverse than it once was. We're majority philanthropically funded. We have an amazing ecosystem of partners, of sponsors. It's possible to get people excited about this future, to not see it as something that is scary, where something's being taken away from them, where their identity is being challenged. This is a movement that can welcome everybody in. We just need to talk about it in ways that make sense to people, that is not emotionally triggering, and that invites them in as change agents in their own lives and in their communities. Eve, thank you so much for joining us on Food Lab Talks today. It's been wonderful hearing about your incredible work and thoughts. Good luck with what is next for you. Thank you, Michael. I enjoyed my conversation with Eve. A couple of things that stood out for me. There are many myths and false stories we tell ourselves about changing a system. In reality, there is an enormous amount of complexity in how perception and behaviors are shaped. Eve founded the Food for Climate League on the belief that reframing the narrative would shift diets. And four years later, her organization has expanded their toolkit to address the food environment, choice architecture, and more. Before diving into solutions, it is also important to learn from people, hear their perspective on the challenge, and listen to what they have to say. As solutions-focused change makers, we often want to jump quickly to what we can do to make something better. As Eve shared today, and Stephen Rich shared earlier this season, Spending time listening to the community can truly help you tailor your solution for maximum impact. Empowerment, autonomy, connectivity. Eve's theory of change relates to addressing feelings of loneliness, stress, and anxiety through these three principles. Consider what is causing your intended audience or community to behave the way they are and how you might counteract those drivers and begin to shift behavior. I suspect that for many systemic challenges, you may arrive at similar principles as Eve, empowerment, autonomy, and connectivity. For more information about the Food for Climate League and other topics discussed today, be sure to check out the show notes. Thank you for joining us for this episode. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to the podcast at foodlaptop.com or wherever you listen to your podcast. As we close, I invite you to pursue your own bold vision and take whatever action you can take toward a better food system. See you next time. Thank you.